recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. Welcome to Christogenia on Talk Show. Thank you for listening. And praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Tonight is um, February 10th, 2012. And we're going to cover um, Hosea chapters 6 through 9, Yahweh willing. I want to revisit Hosea 1.10, just as a sort of, of a recap. Hosea 1.10 says, Yes, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said to them, Ye are the sons of the living God. In order to realize the fulfillment of this prophecy, we must find the dispersed people of the children of Israel who were deported by the Assyrians, which is whom Hosea was describing. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the coming fate of those very same children of Israel about to be deported by the Assyrians, records these words of God in the 66th chapter of his prophecy at verse 19. And I will set a sign among them. And I will send those that escape of them, meaning those who, who escaped from Assyria and, and basically from Mesopotamia, unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Well, Tarshish is Tartessus in Spain. Pol is an allegorical name for Assyria after one of its kings, as can be ascertained in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Lud is Lydia in Anatolia. Tubal at this time was a nation on the Black Sea. Javan, as can be ascertained from inscriptions, are certainly the Ionians, the Ionian Greeks. And Javan here represents the lands of the Greeks. Within 300 years of the deportations of the Israelites, the Germanic people showed up in all of these places. They were called Galatahi or Gauls at that time by the Greeks in the 5th century B.C., The Germanic people showed up in all of these places and threatened the very existence of the ancient world. They overthrew Assyria, 612 B.C. They sacked Lydia not 20 years later. They threatened Ionia. They sacked Etruria by 400 B.C., which was another land of the Lydians in northern Italy. Etruria, the Etruscans, were by all ancient accounts colonists of the Lydians. And they settled what became known as Gaul, where, they, where the Celts ran into the Proto-Celts, as they're called by archaeologists, the Q-Celts and the P-Celts. They settled what became known as Gaul as far west as Spain or what was once the land of Tarshish. All these places where Isaiah said they were going to show up, they showed up within 300 years. And, and in some of those places, of, of course, a lot sooner. 
No other people showed up in all of these places in the centuries following the deportations of the children of the Israelites. This is the large place where the children of Israel were to be fed by Yahweh, where he says in Hosea 4.16, now Yahweh will feed them as a lamb, Christ the lamb, in a large place. With the spread of Christianity to Europe, every word of these prophecies has come true. This is why the apostles brought their gospels to the white tribes of Europe and the Near East which was at that time predominantly white. Paul quotes this passage of Hosea, Hosea 1.10, in his epistle to the Romans, who were actually descended from a much earlier dispersion of the Israelites, in Romans chapter 9, comparing Jacob and Esau. Peter paraphrases this same passage in his epistles, which were written to the non-Judean tribes of Asia Minor which were also all white at that time, in 1 Peter 2.10. The apostles knew where the so-called lost sheep of Israel were, and in time, those people alone became the nations of Christendom, a name that they bore for over a thousand years. While the other races, or, or while some peoples of the other races, had been brought into Roman Catholicism, or, or some people wanted the Protestant sects, that is an error of man, and it is not the calling of God, which is only directed towards the children of Israel. With this, we will start with Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, having left off at the end of chapter 5 last week. Come and let us return unto Yahweh, for he is torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Christian identity commentators have taken this statement and equated it to a prophecy of 2,000 years and, and a part of another thousand in order to gauge for themselves the time of the institution of the restoration of Israel and the kingdom of God which we anticipate and hope for here on earth. They imagine this because Peter said that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Certain of these commentators have imagined this 3,000-year process to begin at the dawn of the Christian era in order to support their harebrained 2012 thesis. However, in the context of Hosea, it must be imagined that this period began when the nation is taken captive and so, it has, and, and I'm using a round number, right, because the captivity was a process which took many years. It has already been 2,700 years since the nation was originally torn and smitten, as we see here in Hosea 6.1. I would not attempt to time the coming of the restoration of the kingdom by this prophecy. 
The prophecy can also be understood as referring to Christ himself. Of course, the, the two days and the third day and, and the restoration it is, of course, a, a, a type for the three days that Christ was in the earth and the resurrection, right? So the prophecy can be understood as referring to Christ in the sense that he was in the earth three days and upon his resurrection in the third day. We have an assurance of that restoration which all true Christians await. But Christ was also resurrected at the end of the third day and not at its beginning as some current day would-be prophets would forcibly interpret this prophecy to indicate. So, so if you want to use this prophecy to um, gauge the coming of the kingdom of God, well, we might have 300 more years, and, and that's not exactly what most of us anticipate. I, I wouldn't be upset if it turns out to be so, right? Hosea 6.3, then we shall know if we follow on to know Yahweh, his going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come to us as the rain, as the later and former rain unto the earth. This later rain and, and former rain, or, or in the Septuagint it says the early and the later rain, right? That, that word former really could mean early. This later and former rain is symbolic of the two promised messianic advents. And since we have seen the first, we should know with certainty that there shall be a second. This is also illustrated at Joel 2, verse 23, which says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the later rain in the first month using the natural environmental processes which occurred in ancient Palestine as a basis and a type for the scriptural prophecy of God. Hosea is also relating the, the latter rain and the former rain to the awakening of the children of Israel mentioned in verse 2 where it says after two days he will revive us and in the third day he will raise us up and we shall live. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter quoted from that same prophecy of Joel in relation to the coming of the new covenant gospel. And therefore Peter equated the spread of the gospel to the early rain, or to the former rain. Now we must examine what that later rain is going to be. Talking with his disciples, we see the following exchange between them and Christ at Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. And I quote, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes, that Elias, Elias is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Elijah, right? That Elias must come first. And Yahshua answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you 
that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they, whatsoever they listed. Likewise, also the Son of Man shall suffer of them. Whatsoever they wished would be a more modern way of saying it. This is the King James. Then the disciples understood that he spake of, unto them of John the Baptist. Luke one seventeen says of John the Baptist, who is yet about to be born, as Luke records the story, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. So Elias, or Elijah, shall come and, and has come already. Speaking of the spirit and the power of Elijah, a representative of that spirit and power, and not necessarily of Elijah personally. The disciples understood that the Elijah that had come, as Christ had said, and as we see here in the 13th verse of Matthew 17, the apostles understood that that Elijah that had come was represented by John the Baptist. But Christ also said that Elijah shall come, meaning at some future point, two advents of a Messiah would require two advents of the messenger before his face. Therefore, we see that the early reign and the later reign are both precipitated by the spirit and power of Elijah, who is used as an allegory the first time for John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 4, we see the following. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. I've already likened that to the to the phoenix, right? Which is an ancient Aryan symbol. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet. Now, now this is what Christ means by Elijah restoring all things. The restoration of all things is the restoration of everything related to the covenants between God and Israel. And it's limited to that. Because this here in Malachi chapter 4 is the only prophecy concerning the coming Elijah found in the books of the prophets. It must be what Christ was referring to. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, the day of judgment.
And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we see what Elijah was to restore. Malachi chapter 3 talks about the first coming of Christ and the, Christ and, and the promises and prophecies made there in Malachi chapter 3 have been fulfilled in Christianity. However, these things described in Malachi chapter 4 were never fulfilled with the early reign in the first century or unto this very day. This, I am persuaded, is the later reign, that the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. This describes a racial awakening. It describes a realization of the knowledge that we are indeed the children of the ancient Israelites, and that the covenant of God belong to us, to our race, and that we therefore have an obligation to safeguard them so that they may be passed on to our children, who must be the children of that same race according to the Mosaic laws, the commandments in Horeb. The early reign is the spread The early reign is the spread of the gospel, and the later reign is our national awakening. The raising up of the people of Israel described in Hosea 6.2. Verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goes away, it evaporates. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goes forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings." Now, the Septuagint has verse 5 to read a little differently. Therefore, I have mown down your prophets. I have slain them with the word of my mouth, and my judgment shall go forth as the light. The goodness of Israel had evaporated like the morning dew because the people were chasing idols, and they were following the false prophets of the idols. A prophet is someone who speaks for a god and not necessarily for Yahweh, the God of Israel. The ancient use of the word described that the ancient use of the word was attributed what well, was given to the description of any prophet who spoke for any god. And here we see that the prophets were false. The Levitical sacrifices as a propitiation for sin were instituted as a reminder of God's law and our transgression. As Paul said to the Galatians, the law was their tutor to Christ, which also substantiates the fact that they were indeed of the dispersion of Israel. Christ quoted this very passage, Hosea 6.6, 6, in rebuttal to the legalism of the Pharisees several times in the Gospel. Hosea 6.7, But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. 
Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. How does this not still describe our priests of today? The Septuagint has Hosea 6.9 to read, and thy strength is that of a robber. The priests have hid the way. They have murdered the people of Shechem, for they have brought, wrought iniquity in the house of Israel. Our priests, our pastors of today, murder our people by lying to them. And so it was then. It was the priests and the false prophets who were primarily responsible for teaching the people the race mix and to commit other abominations. And so it is today. The priests were installed by the king. As we saw last week, where I described it from the Old Testament, Jeroboam, the first king of the divided kingdom over Israel, replaced the legitimate priests with those of his own, who would do his bidding. He replaced the service of the Levites with the service of the golden calves, and took the lowest of men and made them priests and prophets to the gods of the golden calves to the golden calf gods. He did that in order to, to keep political control. That is why he replaced the true religion with the religion of idolatry. Today's Christian pastors have themselves surrendered to the commercial religion of multiculturalism and diversity. And they too, once again, murder our people daily by encouraging them to race mix and to seek after the false gods of Judaism. So what the priests are doing, it might seem innocent. What these pastors out there in the mainstream are doing, it might seem innocent, it might seem innocuous, but they tell these people from their pulpits that all these foul things are acceptable and the people believe it. And they run off and do these things. And when they give up their daughters to Negroes and, and, and all kinds of brown squat monsters, they're actually responsible for the murder of those girls and of our people. Hosea 6.10. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he has set a harvest for thee when I return to captivity of my people. Israel is defiled. Because, as we saw in Hosea 5-7, Israel had begotten strange children. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now a month shall devour them with their portions meaning they will be taken out of the land in a very short time. While Hosea is prophesying to Israel, Judah is always included. We cannot lose sight of that, even if it was not yet the time for the end of Judah's kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, right from the time of, um, of the Exodus in chapter 19, Israel is seen as the wife, Israel as the nation, 
our people as the nation were seen as the wife of God. Imagine having a wife and swearing to that wife's father that you would have many children by her. An unconditional oath. You take an oath as was customary in the ancient world. And this is where in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, we see Yahweh well, commanded Abraham divide these animals in half and laid them out on the ground. And Abraham didn't pass through the halves. Yahweh passed through the halves. And it's been explained by men learn, learned in these things, but like um, John Lightfoot and, and other commentators, Matthew Henry. It's been explained by these men that um, that was an act, and, and I've actually seen this in some ancient inscriptions, that that act what was a type of oath which guaranteed that if you failed to fulfill your half of the oath, your, your promise, that it should be that you would be divided as those animals were. Drawn and quartered, right? That's the oath that Yahweh made to Abraham. As was customary in the ancient world. That promises that you yourself would be torn in two if you do not fulfill your part of the, the bargain, your, your oath that you made. Yahweh made that oath to Abraham. That oath to Abraham. So your own life depends on fulfilling the promise, no matter what, that you would have many children with this wife that you took. That's the position God is in with Abraham. Now, you love this woman, but you come home, and she's in bed with an alien. Not just any alien, but a hideous squat monster, to which the ancient Hittites could be likened. You cannot kill her, even if, under your own law, she is worthy of death. But you had made that oath. So you chastise her. And coming home from work a few nights later, once again she's in bed with another alien, this time a Negro. Great of flesh, as the Egyptians of Jeremiah's time were described, Egypt already having been overrun with Nubians. This woman surely needs to die. But remembering your oath, you chastise her, and still you do not kill her. Because your original oath, your unconditional oath that you gave to her father, must stand. This is the mercy of God. And the reason for his mercy for our people, even though we certainly deserve to die. Now let's look at what the law says in regard to adultery. Because this is interesting. This has an impact. It is written in Leviticus 20, verse 10. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, wife, I'm sorry, all these foreign nations that committed adultery with the children of Israel, you think about that. Even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. There are a lot of people in Christian identity today who want to extend the mercy of God not only to the whore, but to the lovers of the whore, the other races which our Israel nations consort with today. But that is not the Scripture. The Scripture tells us that the mercy of God is extended to the children of Israel alone. The day is coming 
when we shall hear the words which say, go up to Lebanon and cry and lift up thy voice in I'm sorry, and lift up thy voice in Dashan and cry from the passages. For all thy lovers are destroyed. Jeremiah 22.20 The children of Israel shall indeed be spared, but all of her paramours, all of those consorting with her, shall be destroyed as the law of God demands. Otherwise, we consider our God to be a hypocrite. Hosea 7, verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief comes in, and the troop of robbers spoils without. The thief was in. As it was then, so it is now. The aliens which we have let run roughshod throughout our nations and the robbers without. Those alien lands which now possess our technology and our debt notes which the Jews have contrived for them in order to induce them against us. China, India. Today it is a little more sophisticated than it was in ancient times, but the problems are the same. The ancient children of Israel were letting these aliens into their land to run roughshod over their people, to loot and to pillage their nation in the name of peace and multiculturalism. We learn the ways of the heathen nations who do not have our moral ethics, and we fall into a state of decay. So long as we are a sinful people, so long as we refuse to follow the basic moral code laid down for us by our God, we cannot be a healthy people, and we cannot expect a righteous government. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 Hosea 7.2 And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. In our vanity, we do not imagine that there is indeed a God who witnesses our sin and who is offended by it. Our own doings beset us be set us about. Or in other words, our punishment is the natural effect of our sin. It's cause and effect. If we let aliens in among us, our morals are going to decline. It's happened very clearly in history, all throughout history, every time. The result is the same, without fail. Hosea 7.3, they make the king, and oh, this is a good verse, they make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. When we, when we repeat the propaganda, 
that our masters fabricate for us. We please our masters. The Jews are happy with race mixing. They're happy with politically correct, obedient, Gentile cattle. The Jews are happy when they hear the made-up Holocaust lies being repeated by the Goyim. The Jews are happy when we follow along with the false idea that some evil Arab terrorists were responsible for 9-11. The Jews are happy when we pronounce that Jesus was a Jew. The Jews are happy when we pronounce that Hitler was a Rothschild. If you write books or blogs about any of those those things, you shall be rewarded by the Jews. Your masters will be happy with you. The Jews have organized the IRS code in order to reward churches that teach the politically expedient falsehoods. These churches get tax benefits and teach lies in exchange for retaining those benefits. Later on, they will indeed have to face the wrath of God. They are all adulterers. As an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he has kneaded the dough until it be leavened. Our sin is a national sin. We are indeed all adulterers, whether we like it or not. We have all bought the lies of our masters at one time or another the lies that the government and the Jews through our government propagate and force down our throats. And our ancestors have bought them also. We have all traded with the enemies of God, and so have our ancestors. We all have something from China or Japan, which helped to put our own brethren out of jobs. None of us can claim innocence. But the first step in healing any disease is to recognize that one has a disease in the first place. We're not even at that point yet. Only then can we as a people and as Christian nations seek repentance. As it was today, it was in the ancient world. Where if the children of Israel didn't themselves partake of the sin, they surely approved or went along with it. Hosea 7.5 In the day of our king, the princes had made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with the scorners. It's fitting to read this passage from the NAS because it agrees with the Septuagint. And the King James Version, the way it stands, is easy to misinterpret. Here's Hosea 7.5 from the NAS. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hands with the scoffers. Good leadership, of course, requires sober vigilance. Again, it is the failure of our rulers which ultimately causes the people to go astray. And we have not had vigilant rulers. And the sounding fathers of this nation have warned about that. They warned us when they created that constitution. They knew it was an imperfect document. And they warned us that the perpetuation of our liberty would require the perpetuation of our vigilance. So when the Jews moved into the land in the late 19th century, 
and set up all their little idols, their burlesque shows, their organized sports, that their, their vaudeville, and all the other things they set up, strip joints, gambling houses. Our people went right to sleep. We went right to sleep. But we, what we were taken immediately by all the Jewish idols and the Jewish media, all the way back in the 1800s. It's incredible. In the days of the divided kingdom, Yahweh God sometimes chose out the kings of Israel, such as in the cases of Jeroboam I and, and much later on Jehu. However, often the people chose their own kings. From 1 Kings 16.16, 16, I'm going to read. And the people that were encamped heard, heard it said that Zimri had conspired and had also slain the king. Wherefore, all Israel made Omri, the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. That's democracy, right? Then we read it, 1 Kings 16, 21 and 22, and I quote, Then were the people of Israel divided into two parts, or parties, right? Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Gedath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people that followed Omri prevailed against the people that followed Tibni, the son of Gedath. The Democrats won that year, right? So Tibni died. He was probably executed. And Omri reigned. This is democracy at work in ancient Israel. This is not good. It is very clear from the biblical account that this is the sign of a society in decay. Rather than turn to God, the people turned to their own devices and they held popularity contests. And the loser died. Too bad we don't have that part today. Where we can see from history that ungodly men most often prevail. The end result of the ungodliness of the people was tyranny. Of the last five kings of ancient Israel, four of them were tyrants who gained the throne through conspiracy, slaying and usurping their predecessors, just like most of the Roman emperors in the declining days of that empire. That's why historians generally, many historians believe that the end result of democracy is always tyranny. And it seems to be that democracy always, and, and there are many examples of this in ancient history, devolves into a tyranny. And we see that happening in our own nation where we started out with a republic, ended up with a democracy, and today we're on the verge of tyranny. It might be a bureaucratic tyranny. It may not be the direct tyranny of the ancient Israelites or, or the third century Romans, but nevertheless, it's still a tyranny. The Romans started out with the Republic, and when they turned to imperialism, which is the assertion of rule over other nations, they devolved into a tyranny. The parable of the trees in the forest. The trees of the forest, I'm sorry. 
From Judges chapter 9, from verse 8, the trees went forth on a time to anoint the king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, Come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit to be promoted over the trees? Then the tree said unto the vine, Come and reign over us. And the vine said to them, Should I leave my wine, which cheers God and man, to go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees of the forest to the bramble, Come and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth, the bramble couldn't believe it, right? It's the lowest of trees. If in truth you anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. The allegory is to show that all of the good and the productive men of the land have no desire to rule over their fellows. And so we saw it with the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. The lesson here is that when, when men seek earthly kings to rule over them, they shall naturally end up with the lowest and most useless sorts for their rulers. Once they do, they must subject themselves to the scum of the earth, to the bramble, or be devoured by them. And the lowest of men gain advantages over the most noble. That is the, it, it's a parable from the book of Judges that describes the absolutely unpreventable result that we've seen again all throughout history. It might start out okay, but we end up with the scum of the earth ruling over us every time, just like we've had these last hundred years in American history. Hosea 7, 6. For they have made ready their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their beggar sleeps all the night. In the morning it burns as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me, meaning unto God. I'd like to read these same passages again from the NAS. The King James is very difficult in some of these places and, and poorly translated in others. For their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smoke, smolders all night. In the morning... It burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Because of a lack of true godly leadership, the nation as a whole suffered the losses which resulted from warfare within and immoral warfare without and immoral 
immorality within. During this period, there were wars with Judah, with Syria, with Egypt, and the nation internally slid into a state of moral decadence. We see the same pattern in our current history, where war is used by rulers as a tool to manipulate and bind the people to their own causes, to the causes of the, of the rulers who just happen to all be Zionist Jews. Hosea 7.8. Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. This is the exact same situation we're in today. Ephraim being used as a label for all of the Israelites of the divided kingdom to the northern ten tribes. Yeah, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knows it not. I'd like to read that again from the NAS. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Because we as a people collectively do not learn from history, we repeat it over and over again. If we indeed learn from history, we would not repeat it. But the propaganda of those who would rule over us, those bramble bushes, the scum of the earth, always seems to be able to blind us. That leads us in a circle, right back to the parable of the trees of the forest. In the end, we must realize that the only way to escape this hopeless pattern is that we must accept the sovereignty of our God and seek his way. And until we all realize this, we do not have a solution. Ephraim is a cake not turned because he mixed himself with the other nations. This analogy has much more meaning for us today than it did even then. Where the known world at the time of the ancient kingdom was a white world, and the black African was certainly a rare sight. Black Nubians did overrun Egypt, which already had many black slaves, no doubt, in the 8th century B.C., and they ruled over all or part of it for nearly a hundred years until they were again overthrown and their rulers were driven out by the Egyptians. Yet from that time, black blood never left Egypt. Of course, not all the people were black. Most of them were still white. But from that time, black blood never left Egypt. In their decadence, the ancient Israelites had intercourse with the Egyptians the remnants of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Philistines, the Syrians, the people of the Greek islands, some of whom were descendants of Israelites and some of whom were not, the Edomites, the Arabs, and whoever else they came in contact with. When the religious barriers had broken down, then it naturally followed that the civil barriers also broke down. 
Once those barriers are broken, the path to race mixing is open and it's unpreventable. A cake not turned is a cake that's half black. Ephraim is a cake not turned because he mixed himself with the other nations. You put a pancake on the fire and see what happens when you fail to turn it over. Ephraim mixing with the peoples of the other nations, strangers have devoured his strength, yet he knows it not. Today, the Jews try to convince us that there is strength in diversity, yet just the opposite is true. Now, all of the white nations are overrun with aliens, and the aliens are consuming our resources and devouring our strength. We don't learn from history. We don't look back and read our Bibles. If we read our Bibles as a people, the Jews wouldn't be able to fool us with this garbage. The more we are flooded with aliens, the higher taxes we have. And we get nothing back in return because the aliens don't produce damn near anything what they consume. You do not make steel bars stronger by mixing clay into the process, and the same is true of people. Here we see that diversity is odious to God. God hates diversity, and he punishes us for it. The Christian apostle Paul quoted Hosea, and therefore we have these things to learn from to this day, and we as a people have ignored them. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face. And they do not return to Yahweh their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without a heart. And they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation has heard. The Israelites, rather than humbling themselves and repenting, arrogantly sought deliverance from the Assyrians to win alliance with Egypt. Yet, Egypt was no salvation for them, and they ended up being taken away captive by the Assyrians as God had willed. We also see that self-pride and vanity are factors in the national downfall. These people were proud of their sin. Today, we have the same thing all over again. Our people are proud of their sin. I saw a YouTube video about an hour before this program. My friend Robert showed it to me. We were discussing it on the Christiania chat server. It made me absolutely sick. There was a 13-year-old white girl talking about slut-shaming and how it's okay for a woman to dress like a slut. And she professed that no matter how many lovers a woman had, at whatever age, it was nobody's business. 
This girl is a 13-year-old white girl, and she's a total pig. This is what 100 years of the Jewish media has brought us. This is what 50 or 60 years of the Frankfurt School influence over our educational system has brought us. And I would love to bet that this little girl's parents are proud of her. They've raised themselves the perfect little slut, the perfect little whore at 13. She's already destroyed. Her parents are responsible for her murder. Hosea 7.13. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Those lies are the same lies we see mentioned in verse 3, where it says, they make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. The rulers, drunken with power, and the people have learned to repeat the same lies and propaganda which keeps those rulers in power. The Holocaust stories, the idea, the, the absolutely insane idea that Jesus Christ was a Jew. The insane idea that these people that call themselves Jews today are God's chosen people. The lies that are spread through propaganda are all vehicles for the Antichrist to maintain power over the real people of God. And our people repeat them happily. We have a plethora of lies today, consistently parroted by the people who learn them from the media, and, and they feel that they're smart because they can repeat everything that the Jews on the television told them. And all of this keeps the wicked Antichrist Jews in power over us. And Yahweh said here, though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. White Christians today, for the most part, are the true descendants of these ancient Israelites. And they are those who have been redeemed by Christ. This is speaking, this is a prophecy, it's speaking in projection. He has redeemed no one else, in spite of the lies which the Judaized churches now teach. This message is just as pertinent to us today and to our situation today as it was to the Israelites of Hosea's time. Our history has repeated itself because we do not learn from history. Therefore, these prophecies all have a double meaning. Jeremiah, all the way through the book. Isaiah, all the way through the book. We can see that while it applied to our ancient ancestors of the Old Kingdom, all of these prophecies all apply to us again today. Verse 14 and they have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. 
They assemble, this, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. And just like today, the people at that time were more interested in themselves, in their consumerism, in filling their bellies, than they were in the state of their race and their kingdom. Race mixing and the interests of international commerce are rebellion against God. And they are just as much rebellion today as they were in Hosea's time. Race mixing is not modern. 2,700 years ago, Ephraim was a cake not turned and strangers were devouring his strength. Race mixing is an ancient and despicable crime. And God does not change. He will punish those who flaunt his will. Malachi 3.6 For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The only reason why we are not consumed is because of the promises that God made to our ancient ancestors. If it weren't for those promises, there wouldn't be a white man on the face of the earth today. Because we so easily cave into the lies of the Jews, and we race mix, and we destroy ourselves. Verse 15. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow, their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of the captivity. If we today partake in all of the same sins, how can we be so arrogant as to think that we can escape the same punishments? This is the fall of Babylon, which we await, which we are promised in Revelation chapter 18. And all of these ancient prophecies are clearly once again being fulfilled in us today. However, in the Revelation, in chapter 18, we also have an admonishment to come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. Revelation 18.4 Our ancient ancestors adopted the pagan religions of Canaan, accompanied by the race mixing which those religions insisted upon. Christians today must learn to reject the Antichrist Canaanite Jews and all of their gods, which are idolatry and consumerism, and especially diversity and multiculturalism. These things were the cause of our ancient downfall. And they are also the cause of our corruption today. Hosea chapter 8. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of Yahweh, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. 
Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. That was the democracy that we spoke about. Of their silver and their gold, they have made them idols, that they may be cut off. Therefore, we see that democracy is ungodly. It is evident in the second books of Kings, in, in the second book of Kings, though we are not always told how the kings of Israel and the divided kingdom actually came to power, that the people were often appointing their own kings, as we are told here that they were indeed doing. That is the case explicitly in the second book of Kings with Omri and his sons who followed him, and it was also probably the case with Basha and some of the others. Bashar actually preceded Amri after the end of the first dynasty of the kings who were descended from Jeroboam. Democracy is not good. And we see all throughout our recent history that democracy has been absolutely detrimental to the cause of our race and its health. Hosea 8.5 Thy calf, O Samaria, has cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? Thy calf, O Samaria, has cast thee off. This, is, this saying is an allegory which tells us first that the idols of the people were not able to save them. And then that they were cast off by their true God on account of those idols. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? This is a rhetorical question which asks how long it will be before the people are able to cease from their wrongdoing. Verse 6. For from Israel was it also, the workmen made it, therefore it is not God or a God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. Jehu, the last king of Israel in the divided kingdom who was actually chosen by God, he was about tenth from the end, though, and four generations of his own descendants followed him. Jehu had undertaken a great reform in the ancient kingdom of Israel, and for that he was rewarded. Yet, while he was able to remove Baal worship from the nation, mostly by killing off all of his priests, he failed to remove the worship of the golden calves. He never even tried, which Jeroboam I had set up nearly a hundred years before him. The worship of the golden calves in Samaria had continued for a hundred years after Jehu, until the children of Israel were carried away captive. It's evident in their captivity from history that they did, in fact, leave the golden calf worship behind because I don't see it followed in Europe. Verse 7. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. 
It has no stock. The bud shall yield no meal. If so it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. The whirlwind is the only wind which blows back around. It's only the wind which blows back around in a circle, right? It's another way of saying that we reap just what we have sown. That our national calamity is a result of our sinful ways. Here we sit, spinning our wheels, so to speak. We work harder for money that has less value, while aliens eat up all of our wealth in the form of goods and services provided by the ever-burgeoning bureaucracy, by our tax dollars. So it is now, and so it was in ancient Israel. It's the same exact pattern. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. Now they shall be among the nations as a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. The children of Israel were taken away captive, and they were relocated in northern Mesopotamia and along the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. These were the nations of the Medes, the Persians, the Assyrians, and a few of the other related white peoples of Genesis chapter 10. And that is the fulfillment of this prophecy and similar prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel, which said that the children of Israel would be scattered among the nations. It is from these places, and, and there are other prophecies also which foretell this, it is from these places that after a few generations, the children of Israel would emerge as the Cimmerians, the Scythians, the Sacae, the Parthians, and the other names by which they have been called by the classical historians. And they would regather themselves eventually in Europe. I'll be discussing that tomorrow night here on TalkShoe. Verse 9, for they had gone up to Assyria, a wild ass, alone by himself, Ephraim has hired lovers. Yeah, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them. They shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin, altars shall be sin unto him. As Paul wrote, the things that the nations, meaning the scattered Israelites in his time, the things that the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings and eat it, but Yahweh accepts them not. Now he will remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Egypt here is a symbol for captivity. And Israel would for a time return to captivity. The Israelites of the captivity were under the yoke of the Assyrians for over a hundred years. After the tribes began to disperse, some of them still remained for quite some time, for several centuries longer, under the yoke of the Babylonians and the Persians. Verse 14 for Israel has forgotten his maker and builds temples. 
and Judah has multiplied fenced cities. But I will send a fire upon his fenced cities, and shall devour the palaces thereof. And we must keep in mind that we see Judah remains within the scope of the prophecy along with Israel. The two are not as divided as some commentators like to claim. And of course, we're not talking about Jews, right? Great numbers of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were also taken captive with the Israelites along to Assyria. And they were counted among the so-called ten tribes of the captivity. It is evident from one Assyrian inscription that when Sennacherib took the 46 fenced cities of Judah captive, which we see described in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, that from those alone he deported over 200,000 people to Assyria when he took the 46 cent cities of Judah. In the captivity of Samaria, a single city of ancient Israel, one city, over 27,000 more Israelite captives were taken and resettled in Assyrian lands to the north. We have those records from Assyrian inscriptions, and those things are mentioned in the Bible. There are many other Israelite cities, the lands in, 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 in the Transjordan, the land in Galilee, the lands along the coast of Israel, all containing Israelites that were all taken captive by the Assyrians. And we don't have all of the inscriptions. We have the biblical records. We have some inscriptional evidence, but we don't have all of the inscriptions needed that would tell us how many people were taken from all of those places. And as we've seen from our history, people propagate along the coasts. I mean, all throughout our history, people have propagated along the coasts and settled along the coasts to a higher degree than they have settled inland. And we see Samaria and the 46 fence cities of Judah were all inland. So imagine how many people the Assyrians deported from all of those cities along the coasts. And it would probably be five or six times or, or ten times this number. Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy is other people. For thou hast gone a whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved the reward upon every corn floor. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in Yahweh's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And that's an allegory for captivity, right? And they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. In other words, Egypt is an allegory for captivity, but they're really going to Assyria, right? And history verifies that they were all indeed relocated to Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings unto Yahweh, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners, and all that eat thereof shall be polluted. For their bread, for their soul, their lives, shall not come into the house of Yahweh. 
What will you do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of Yahweh? For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt, meaning captivity, shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them, the pleasant places for their silver. Nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. Maybe that means Canaanites, right? Isaiah chapter 56 speaks to these Israelite children of the captivity allegorically, and it calls them eunuchs and dry trees and the children of strangers. The language describes the status of the children of God in the time of their alienation from God. Their restoration was in Christ. And their restoration in Christ is the very literal reconciliation to God, which the Apostle Paul often described. So here we see where we see Hosea talking about what the children of Israel are like to Yahweh as a result of their sin and their being deported from the land and cast off. And we see the language in Isaiah 56 is maybe more graphic, but very similar. We know, and we know in other ways also, that Isaiah is surely talking about Israelites, right? Verse 7. The day of visitation, the days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet, meaning the false prophets, the false priests, which the Israelites were, were heeding. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. True hatred is an, a rebellion against Hosea 9.1. We'll take it from there. Thank you, Matt. I don't know what happened to my connection. It just died. I'm sorry. I can't help it, but I'm sorry. Hosea 9.1, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy is other people. For thou hast got a whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved the reward upon every corn floor. The floor in the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in Yahweh's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Now Egypt is an allegory for captivity. History verifies that they were relocated to Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to Yahweh. Neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted. For their bread, for their soul, shall not come into the house of Yahweh. What will you do in the solemn day, and in the day of the feast of Yahweh? For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Either Egypt gathers them up. Memphis shall bury them. The pleasant places for their silver. Nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. Maybe the thorns are Canaanites, right? I would hope not. Isaiah chapter 56 speaks of these 
children of Israel, the children of the captivity, allegorically. And it calls them eunuchs, and it calls them dry trees, and it calls them the children of strangers. The language describes the status of the children of God in the time of their alienation from God. And we see very similar language here of the children of Israel in their alienation from God. And therefore we know that Isaiah chapter 56, and and there are other ways to tell from the chapter itself, of course, but Isaiah chapter 56 is surely discussing Israelites and nobody else. The restoration of these people is in Christ. Christ is the very literal reconciliation to God, which the Apostle Paul often described in his epistles. And that reconciliation comes through Christ. Hosea 9.7 The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. And they're talking, Yahweh is talking about the false prophets of the idols which Israel was worshipping. The false priests and the false prophets. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad. And oh, do we see this today. For the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred Hatred, real hatred, is rebellion from God. The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. This is important. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. The days of Gibeah. In Gibeah, this is in the book of Judges, I believe. In Gibeah, a woman, a concubine of a Levite traveler, was raped and murdered by men of Belial. Belial is a word which can infer that one is of mixed race, since it comes from a word which means worthlessness. But that word, in turn comes from a word which means mixed. If something is worthless, there must be a reason for it. The entire tribe of Benjamin supported the evil deed. They defended these men of Belial against all of Israel who had come to avenge the woman, the woman that these perverts, these men of Belial, raped and raped and murdered. This led to a civil war, and most of Benjamin was destroyed as a result. The iniquity of Israel, which Hosea speaks of, is every bit as horrible as the iniquity at Gibeah, which happened many hundreds of years before this, maybe four or five hundred years. And we see that a strong connection is made between the men of Belial, the strangers in Ephraim, and the sin of Israel, for which the kingdom here is being judged by God. 
Race mixing is indeed the worst of all sins. However, here, these men who were probably of mixed race, these men of Belial, raped and killed a woman, and the whole tribe of Benjamin defended her. Today, in our society, we have sexual perversion, and most Americans defend somebody's right to be a damn sexual deviant. We have race mixers, and most Americans would defend somebody's right to be a race mixer. We have all sorts of perversion. We have women, and, and men too, but it's more, it, it's more visible with women. We have women which sleep around, who are with new guys every other night, and Americans, the average American, male and female, would defend her right to do that. We as a people are no better than the men of Gibeah. We as a people are no better than the tribe of Benjamin, which was practically wiped out for defending these perverts. The entire tribe was destroyed. How are we as a people going to escape that same fate? Because most of our people today would be right there with the Benjaminites defending sexual perversion. Defending the rape of women. And all the other crimes that were going on at that time. Verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig at her first time. They went to Baal-peor and separated themselves under that shame, and their abominations were according as they had loved. This again is a reference to race mixing. Bal Peor. It's talking about number, the event that we see in Numbers chapters 24 and 25. Men of Israel in those chapters are described as having joined themselves to Bal Peor and to the daughters of Moab. Most Christians are ignorant that ancient Baal worship included fertility rituals and public acts of sexual intercourse. Wouldn't the Jews of today love that? We're headed there. This event at Baal Peor set off a plague among the Israelites in which 24,000 men died in a single day. The plague was stayed only when Phineas slew one of the princes of Israel who had joined in the race mixing, along with the woman whom he was coupled with. Paul refers to this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he calls the act which was committed fornication. Fornication is the New Testament word for race mixing. Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31, commemorate the act of Phineas, where it says, Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness, unto all generations forevermore. So we see the sins of the children of Israel. The defense, that's what's going on in Gibeah, the defense of sexual perversion. 
and race mixing, which is what's going on in Balpeor. And those two things are mentioned here in connection with the Israelites of the kingdom who were being taken away for those very things, who had become alienated from God and punished by him for those very things. Today we have an entire nation of race mixers. We have an entire nation who would be quick, of people who would be quick to defend perverts, sexual deviants, homosexuals, whores that sleep around, and all sorts of other disgusting things, and especially race mixers. How could we escape this judgment that our ancient ancestors once were punished with? How are we better than them? We better hope for the mercy of God. We better pray for the mercy of God. Because it's going to come upon us. Verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yeah, woe also unto them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Today they're called abortion clinics. Tyre was also a city of Israel. Yet here in the Septuagint, the reference to Tyre is wanting. And the text, according to Brenton, says, Ephraim, even as I saw, gave their children for a prey. Ephraim was ready to bring out his children to slaughter. When we give our children in marriage to non-whites, in the eyes of God, we are murdering them. When we approve of the sexual deviancy of our children, in the eyes of God, we're murdering them. Verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. It's better that we do not have children if we do these things. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no more fruit. They shall bear no fruit, I'm sorry. Yeah, they, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away, because they did not hearken unto him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Appropriately, Gilgal is a place, but the name means a wheel or rolling. After the deportations of the Israelites... The Scythian tribes did just that for ten centuries. Gilgal was an ancient seat of the prophets, 2 Kings 4.38, and the home of Samuel and of Saul. Apparently, it later became a place for false prophets and a center of idolatry, which can be told from Amos chapters 4 and 5. And the great number of our people... The Germanic tribes indeed wandered for as many as a thousand years in Asia and eventually into Europe until the 5th, 6th century A.D. 
Today, our people wander metaphorically from one false idea to the next, and they never have a solution. Yet, in the chapters of Hosea yet to come, there is still a message of hope to be found. For we have the promised restoration. But in order to be restored, we have to first realize what the hell has happened to us and what we are being restored to. Our people still have a lot of repenting to do. And before they repent, they still have a lot of suffering in front of them. Don't expect it to get any better, not yet. Thank you for listening tonight. I'll be here tomorrow night with um, my paper, Classical Records of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Good night, everybody.